Greetings from American Exception and Multipolarista. I'm Aaron Good, and this is part seven of Empire and the Deep State, our series on my new book, American Exception. As before, I'm joined by Ben Norton and series producer Seamus McGinnis. In this episode, we close out our exploration of the Eisenhower years. Specifically, we look at Eisenhower's policies in Cuba and Congo, as well as how he made weak, half-hearted attempts to respond to the threats posed by the dangerously unaccountable CIA and the murderously greedy military-industrial complex. As you will see, Ike's was indeed a legacy of ashes. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and you are watching or listening to the Empire and Deep State series this is a joint production of Multipolarista and the American Exception podcast. I'm joined by, as always, by my friends and co-hosts, Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis. They host the American Exception podcast. This series is based on the book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State by the historian and political scientist, Aaron Good. And we're going through a history of the U.S. empire and the U.S. deep state. And this is the last part of our discussion of the Eisenhower administration. In the previous parts, we talked about the Eisenhower administration, the emergence of the deep state and the national security state, and the CIA coups in Iran in 1953 and Guatemala in 1954. We talked about the beginning of U.S. imperialist intervention in Southeast Asia and Vietnam, and the end of the French imperial uh, wars and occupations in Southeast Asia. We talked about Egypt and the Suez Crisis. And we talked about Indonesia, a, a massive, very important country that I think is not really discussed enough and the role of Indonesia's massive gold reserves, its geostrategic location. You should go back and check out those previous parts. In this section, we're going to be talking about Cuba and Congo. So, uh, Aaron, let's, let's start with Cuba. One of the biggest developments during the Eisenhower administration was the victory of the Cuban Revolution and the July 26th movement. Of course, this takes the, the, the victory takes place on January 1st, 1959. And Batista, Fulgencio Batista, the right-wing dictator that controlled Cuba, was a, an important U.S. asset. And in fact, Cuba is one of really the oldest, it had been one of the oldest colonies going back to the beginning of Spanish colonialism in the Americas. There's a lot to say about Cuba. We're not going to cover the Cuban Revolution in five minutes here. We're going to come back to Cuba many times throughout our discussions especially when we're talking about Bay of Pigs and the JFK administration. But how did the Eisenhower administration respond to the victory of the Cuban Revolution in 1959? Well, they were not pleased by what happened, what unfolded after the revolutionary victory of uh, you know Castro and Shea and everyone else. And uh, Cuba it itself is this kind of amazing place in terms of the history of the Western Hemisphere. It's the, one of the first places to be colonized along with, uh, you know, Puerto Rico and Hispaniola and Cuba is right there. Um, the coastline was mapped, you know, short, I mean, it was colonized very shortly after Columbus arrives and the coastline was mapped by 1508. And it was also the, the site from which uh, Cortez launched his expedition into Mexico. As I recall, it was from Cuba that they left. And they landed around Veracruz and then marched all the way to uh, Tenochtitlan, right? And sacked the city and all that. And that, that's exactly in the, in the U.S. war in Mexico in 1846 to 1848. That's also how the U.S. invaded to take over Mexico City. They traced the exact route that, uh, that uh, Cortez had used. And then James Polk, the U.S. president, had, he got as a gift. He hung up in the, in the White House, in the Oval Office, a portrait of Cortez. So there you go, continuation of that colonial legacy. Yeah, and that's why the Marine fight song says like from the halls of Montezuma, halls of Montezuma. to the shores of Tripoli. Of course, uh, you know, that the Mexican-American War and then the Barbary Pirates is what that's a reference to, I believe, but it's of course takes on added significance after Gaddafi meets his end. But I I digress here a bit. Getting back to to Cuba, um the African slave trade starts there early in the arrives there in the early 1500s, and it becomes a, a, a slave and sugar trading hub in the Caribbean. 
Uh, and this remains us, you know, a, 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 a important Spanish possession for centuries. After the Bolivarian revolutions of the 1800s, Cuba was the main Spanish colonial possession in the Western Hemisphere, uh, along with the Philippines in the Pacific. And they were an empire, obviously in great decline. The Spanish were. It was a, a you know a multiple century decline that they experienced. And as they were, their their colonial empire was just barely hanging on. Uh, at the dawn of the 20th century, the U.S. is this rising imperial power. You know they've already gone to see the shining sea. They've taken over Hawaii. And uh, there's a civil, there's a, a something of a civil war in Cuba, but it's not really going that well. And they, the Spanish seem to have crushed it brutally, as colonial masters do. And then eventually, after the explosion of the main and lots of propaganda from people like William Randolph Hearst and lots of other scheming from, on the part of people like Henry Cabot Lodge and Teddy Roosevelt, you get the Spanish-American War, which actually starts out in the Philippines. Uh, and it, but it, but it was really Cuba was the ostensible cause of this. Uh, even though they, the first place they attack is the Philippines, and then McKinley, the president, gives this really ridiculous excuse, saying that if they didn't attack in the Philippines, then the the Dons, as he calls them, might have come over and started uh, attacking San Francisco. Then they, they would have sent the Spanish Navy to attack the West Coast, which was ridiculous. But you know that was they really had their eyes on the Pacific, as evidenced by their annexation of you know Guam, Hawaii, and so on. So the Spanish-American War leaves the U.S. with a problem, well, a problem, They this dilemma or <laughs> a choice to make about whether they want to occupy and annex uh, the Philippines and Cuba, and they op opt to, um, for basically neocolonialism in Cuba. So there's the Platt Amendment in uh, 1901 to deal with the Cuban question, and it gets signed in 1902, this treaty with Cuba, and it allows for uh, these provisions that are ridiculous. It's not a sovereign country at all. The U.S. has the right to intervene militarily anytime they want to. And Cuba has agreed to this, according to the treaty. They also cede Guantanamo Bay to Cuba, which is strategically located for uh, what would become the Panama Canal. You know, it's a very important passage to allow East people from ships from the East Coast of the United States to go to the Pacific. And you'd pass by Guantanamo. So it's a very useful spot. Um, but this is a time where the, the, the imperialism of the U.S. creates the Anti-Imperialist League, uh, which is opposition, especially to the annexation of the Philippines. And the U.S. doesn't really become a full-on imperial power in the same way as Europe. The, even, the, even the annexation of the Philippines or the control of the Philippines is supposed to expire, which it eventually does. And then the Philippines becomes more or less a neo-colony after a period of Spanish occupation. Uh, but Cuba becomes a mafia playground, especially during Prohibition. The um, the, the Lansky uh, Luciano syndicate would end up with a big presence in Cuba, and these sugar uh, sugar plantations and the fruit companies in general, all these countries in Central America, they were uh, centers of organized crime activity. Not just for the bootlegging aspect of it, like especially rum and such was something you could make in Cuba and sell in America during Prohibition, um, but also because you needed people to crack skulls uh, when uh, sugar farmers, plant people on the plantation would try to organize in some sort of way, and people would want to stand up to the fruit companies. They, they had a relationship with the mafia that that uh, you know kind of helps to explain why Cuba was such a big deal to the mafia. So they had all these U.S. puppets that were running Cuba. And the last of these was Fulgencio Batista, and he is defeated by Fidel Castro and Che Guevara-led forces uh, and Raul Castro. And uh, if you have heard the Blowback podcast, it's, uh, they, have, they do a good bit on this that's pretty nice and digestible for people who like their podcasts. Um, I like those guys. And uh, they were greeted with, you know, the, the U.S. wasn't cheering this because this was a, ne a U.S. neo-colony. So the U.S. establishment's not happy about this. Um, and in the, in the wake of the revolution, Castro nationalizes U.S. business interests. And he does offer compensation to them, to the U.S. for this, but it has to be something that Cuba can actually pay. Uh, and, but the U.S. is not happy about this. It's basically 80% of the Cuban economy was owned by corporate America plus the mob. So this was a this is this is just neo-colonialism, a really brutal example of it. The, the US eventually puts an embargo on Cuba, a trade embargo, 
And this, this of course, forces Castro to get more help from the USSR. Prior to the war or to the revolution, the U.S. had tried to play both sides and had even armed the rebels. Like at one point, Frank Sturgis was involved in arming Castro and these people. And he later goes on to figure in the JFK assassination and gets arrested as one of the Watergate burglars. Really fascinating guy. But uh, eventually they realize that, uh, th that they don't have any control over Castro and he nationalizes all these businesses. So at that point, the CIA gets to work. And the, in order to um, handle this Castro problem, the CIA, who doesn't like to you know, have its hand exposed, they use all sorts of cutouts when they need to do an assassination or whatever. And they went to Bob Mayhew. Uh, Bob Mayhew was the guy who worked especially for the Howard Hughes empire. It was like a military contract for the U.S., you know, famous Howard Hughes, weird guy, recluse, but a CIA, you know, intelligence connected guy as well. And uh, Mayhew was like the, the black bag man. He's the guy that the Mission Impossible show was basically modeled after. So it, the way it's depicted on TV is that these are guys who have some job that's too difficult or too tricky for the government. But really, this guy was a guy who had connections to the mob and would just do really dirty criminal things that uh, the U.S., uh, didn't want to be associated with even the CIA. We didn't want wanted some distance with. So he reaches out to uh, Johnny Rosselli, who you see here in a in a picture that I'll include here, uh, who was a, a mobster, and that was how the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro were uh, were formed. Later, uh, because some of these things in their relation to the JFK assassination come under scrutiny uh, in the seventies. This guy, Johnny Rosselli, uh, is testifying before the church committee, and then he's called back to testify later, but nobody can find him. Uh, and he later surfaces, uh, I think, off the coast of Florida uh, in, uh, in a barrel. He's chopped up in a barrel. That part I do remember. I think it was off the coast of Florida, but at any rate, he was definitely chopped up, definitely put in a barrel, definitely discovered later, definitely not testifying again about what he knows about the Castro plots and the JFK assassination. Um, and to, to do this, they, they had Rosselli, you know, the CIA through Bob Mayhew, through Johnny Rosselli, who Johnny Rosselli, by the way, does have a cameo, uh, an actor playing him in, uh, in Oliver Stone's Nixon, by the way. You can see him uh, talking to J. Edgar Hoover, which is kind of an interesting scene, uh, and Nixon as well. But they recruit mobsters, the top mobsters in the world, or in the U.S., uh, people like Sam Giancana, Carlos Mosello, and... Uh, Santo Traficante, who looks a lot like Junior Soprano in some of these pictures. And they are supposed to, uh, they're going to try to kill Castro uh, on behalf of the CIA. And they, they fail, and they, but they, they try in a number of ways and they're never successful, but they do, uh, the, the CIA is attempting this. It's also rumored during this time period, this is getting a little ahead of things, but that Jack Ruby comes to, he was visiting Cuba on some kind of mob business. He definitely visited a subordinate of Traficanti um, and Meyer Lansky, more specifically, um, a guy named Louis McWillie. So the connections to other U.S. CIA intrigues are all fascinating. But uh, the point is the, the, this, the U.S. was never going to allow the CIA to pursue a socialist revolution and nationalize U.S. business interests without trying every dirty trick in the book to stop them. Yeah, I mean, the topic of Cuba is just never ending. We could talk about so many things. Uh, of course, today we're focusing on Eisenhower, so I'll just try to keep it on these comments really brief. But I think it's just worth mentioning that what we see is the start of a pattern here. And this pattern goes on right until Castro's death. And let's not forget that according to documents that we have, and according to a very good documentary that was released by Britain's Channel 4 called 638 Ways to Kill Castro, the U.S., just the U.S. alone, tried to assassinate Castro at least 638 times. And that was that documentary came out in 2006. So there could have been more attempts after. Those are just the ones that we know about in public documents. And that's not to mention other governments that tried to kill Castro. So his, I've heard historians say that out of every figure in human history, the, the figure who had the most assassination attempts against him was probably Fidel Castro, which just adds to how much of a legendary historical badass he was. And um, I mean, there's so many funny and crazy stories about like the CIA sending women to try to like sleep with Castro and kill him, but then they fall in love with him. But um, I will recommend to people, obviously we're talking about Eisenhower here. We'll come back to this topic 
But I would recommend that documentary, 638 Ways to Kill Castro, because it, it talks about people like Orlando Bosch. It talks about people like um, Felix Rodriguez um, and these terrorists. I mean, literal CIA-backed terrorists who were involved at uh, Posada Carriles, who were involved in bombing civilian airplanes, bombing hotels. And they were, they were living in, in the documentary. They interview some of these terrorists like Posada Carriles, who were living in Miami, living in Florida and died peacefully after they were involved in massacring civilians and blowing up airlines. So anyway, whatever, that's a whole other conversation. But I just wanted to mention that because when we're talking about Eisenhower, we're talking about the beginning of this never ending terrorist war against Cuba that continues until today. Yeah, I mean, these guys, they, they pop up all over the place in covert operations. They surface in the Kennedy assassination. Felix Rodriguez is a big guy in Iran-Contra. Um, Posada Carriles goes on to like, he was one of the people who bombed that Caribbean uh, fencing team out of the sky, right? I mean, these guys are just uh, fascist um, Literal gangsters. terrorists. Yeah. Textbook definition terrorists. Yeah. Sponsored by the CIA. Yeah, of course, H.W. Bush, who was CIA director uh, for years and, and was presumably a uh, not on the books agent prior to that, uh, including in 1963. Um, but he released Orlando Bosch in the 90s or, or sorry, in the 80s, um, who I believe Bosch was in, uh, involved in the airline bombing of the Cuban fencing team. Um, so, uh, you know. Of course, the historical rhyme there with uh, with the elder and and the son, Bushes and their stance on terrorism should not be lost on people. But we aren't just encouraging terrorism in the Middle East. Um, you know, it, we get very comfortable with it, uh, very close to our home soil, um, much earlier, including things like Operation Northwoods, which I, I believe we'll talk about if we haven't already. But I would think most viewers are are familiar with it now. Um, but I want to turn now to uh, to the Congo, and we talked about Indonesia last week, so just to kind of bridge the gap there, uh, the Congo is a very similar story of our investment there is is a like result of geopolitical positioning in terms of it, it you know it can act as a base for a communist or or U.S. interests in Africa, uh, but also being extremely resource rich and therefore being of interest to the extractivist uh, capitalist interests that tend to lead the military industrial complex through this period. So um, that is a driving force behind why um, the Congo becomes such a priority at this point. But there's also this history we keep talking about, things like the Dutch being replaced by the Americans in Indonesia. Similar things happen but with the the Belgians being replaced by the Americans in the Congo. And so we see this move to neocolonialism that is enabled by the US economic system that acts differently than the colonial structure of, of the Europeans. And the Belgians really only have to give up direct control and turn it into a, a colony because they genocided 10 million people in a decade. And it was so brutal. There, the quantity of the dead was so large that even other European powers sort of went, okay, King Leopold, this is this is too much, man. But it wasn't on principle that, hey, maybe they deserve some sovereignty. It's just you gotta you gotta chill out with the the numbers you're putting up. And so that's I, I mean, that gives you a sense of uh, this is very representative of the entire 20th century of colonial history and neocolonial history. And the story of the Congo is is a truly tragic one because there's so much like the trillion dollar or multi-trillion dollar gold mine in Indonesia, the Congo has an unimaginable amount of mineral wealth that could have been turned back to the people and and enabled dreams of, of an actual um, prosperous society in the same way that we saw Libya attempting to do for, for many years using their, you know, a similar strategy of, uh, of resource nationalism. And those dreams were were stolen and dashed and then, you know, kicked again and just decimated by U.S. interests. And of course, uh, the French and the Belgians were um, helpful on that cause. But uh, just turning back to uh, to Eisenhower, um, the Congo is, of course, in, of interest because of these of how resource rich it is. So how does the Eisenhower administration and by extension, uh, the deep state deal with the quote-unquote decolonization or the move to neocolonialism 
in the Congo. Well, Patrice Lumumba was the first democratically elected uh, Congolese prime minister and his uh, rise to power in Congo and Congo's independence comes in the wake of the independence of Ghana, uh, the, which was the first of these African countries to become uh, independent, uh, led by Kwame Nkrumah. And Patrice Lumumba was a character who was seen similarly by the United States. The U.S. had to pretend to be supportive of people like Nkrumah and Lumumba. But of course, for people like the Dulles brothers, uh, these guys were anathema because they were nationalists, meaning that they supported the aspirations of their own people. Okay, They wanted to make their own countries into prosperous places. This was what we're talking about when we're talking about third world nationalism. And in the case and, of Nkrumah, I mean, he was also openly a socialist. Yes. And Lumumba was more of a, just a progressive nationalist, but Nkrumah openly wrote books against capitalism. Right. And he wrote one uh, after Kennedy left office. You know, he, he was a person who recognized right away that Alan Dulles was behind the Kennedy assassination. And when he saw uh, Alan Dulles's name on the Warren report, he just passed it back to the person and said, bah, this is a whitewash. So, uh, this is a guy who understood the empire. And then around that same time period, he wrote the book, Neocolonialism. He wrote the yep. book on neocolonialism and mm -hmm. then and saying that, like, it doesn't matter if we have revolutions because they're just going to come and use this, the intelligence agencies to overthrow us and reinstall kind of colonial political economy on us. So this is there's no free. There's no real independence here at all. And shortly after that, he was removed in a coup. Uh, not coincidentally, but of course, the U.S. did not appreciate this. They liked the decolonization kind of uh, PR campaign, uh, and they didn't want it to be exposed as what it was, which was a push for neocolonialism. Now, Lumumba has this great quote, uh, which I think sums up his problems, the problems that he's had. And it's really uh, so the problems that he had and really a it's a recurring theme. All these uh, this is this is the way that countries in the global south have been able to uplift themselves and lift people out of poverty is through these kind of uh, methods. And so Lumumba said, the exploitation of the mineral riches of the Congo should be primarily for the profit of our own people and other Africans. Well, that was the whole purpose of colonialism was to be able to essentially steal raw materials from the developing world and, or the, you know, the, the third world, the colonized world, the global South. And uh, and yes, they had markets too, but really uh, the, the, the biggest issue was just the amount of resource wealth that they had. And if you nationalize these resources, that's the one way that you can demonstrably lift a lot of people out of poverty, as we've seen in Venezuela and Bolivia. Um, so, But this will bring on the wrath of the United States. And so they try to crush this all the time. So it's you hear Bono, like Bono recently was saying that you know, maybe socialism would lift people out of poverty, but no, he doesn't. He knows that's not true anymore. It's that you got to have like markets and entrepreneurs. So Patrice Lumumba, by pursuing this path, was going to incur the wrath of the United States. But it's not as though the United States would come out and say that these things were forbidden, of course, because that would give the game away. Uh, but but they were. Um, Alan Dulles eventually persuades Ike, uh, you know, President Eisenhower, to authorize the assassination of Lumumba. Now, the way that it's written in the church report and, and other places that have looked into this, the CIA always denies its role. They say, well, we tried to assassinate him, but that didn't work. And then when he dies later, it's not our fault. But this is ridiculous. Um, they did, in, in these first attempts, they tried to have Sidney Gottlieb, the MK Ultra scientist, uh, notorious character. Um, he tried to kill Lumumba with poisonous toothpaste. Uh, that did not work. But in September of 1960, there's a coup by CIA asset Joseph Mobutu, and um, it, this is in, this is in September, and uh, eventually Mobutu gets captured in November of 1960, late 1960, and uh, there's a there's there's video footage and different photographs of Lumumba uh, in captivity. They force fed him one of his speeches. You know they beat him badly. They eventually execute him by firing squad, I believe. Um, he is held uh, for a while, and the, the Kennedy would like other people to be able to um, get get rescue Lumumba. Kennedy actually was, you know, hadn't taken office, but 
by when this when he's captured. But Kennedy is known to be a Lumumba supporter. So a lot of people believe that the reason that they sped this operation up was because of the impending change in policy coming from Ken Kennedy. And so they better kill this guy while they have a chance. So he gets he's held by Joseph Mobutu's forces, forces loyal to Mobutu. Mobutu is a CIS that he later becomes a puppet dictator of Congo for like 30 years. One of the most notorious guys, kind of interchangeable with people like Suharto, just a, a, a guy who is corrupt. And then you could say, oh, well, they have corrupt leaders, so that's why they're doing badly. But he was installed because he was corrupt. OK, this is why you get people like Suharto and um, and and Mobutu. They're not. They don't stay in power despite their corruption. They stay in power because of their corruption. And uh, that's who ends up killing Lumumba. His forces kill Lumumba. And then Lumumba's body is dissolved with like sulfuric acid. I think there's only like a two, a couple of teeth or something that's left. And it's only sent back to Lumumba's family like in the last couple of years or this year, maybe. This year. Yeah. This year, just a few months ago, the family of Lumumba received the only remaining part of his body, a tooth. And then the Democratic Republic of Congo government, they buried the tooth in this symbolic, you know, ceremony. So that, that's the legacy of the CIA and Belgian intelligence is one of the most beloved anti-colonialist leaders in the history of the African continent, dissolving his body in acid and all that re remains is a tooth. Ugh. Yeah. And I mean, he was a remarkable guy. He was a person with a humble background. Uh, he had been in the sort of colonial administration uh, as a as a as a postal employee, like I ran a pre-ran a post officer was a postmaster of sorts, but he was a, a great speaker and he gave expression to the nationalist aspirations of people who had been brutally colonized uh, for, for decades and decades and decades. Uh, and the, the U S the U S killed him. I think it was the guardian, you know, which is pretty terrible newspaper, but they're not, they're sometimes not bad on things that happened long ago. And they called the assassination, uh, you know, the most important uh, assassination of the 20th century or one of them. And uh, this this changed the course of Congolese history. There were lots of reports from the, the Defense Department and elsewhere about the uh, strategic importance of Congo. The uranium, for example, and the nuclear arms race made Congo very important. And then when he's getting help from the Soviets, this just gives him an excuse to say, oh, he's a communist. But Alan Dulles later even said, like, oh, we got that one wrong. But it's sort of like Obama saying that like Libya was a shit show and he got it wrong. Well, you know, that's actually not a failed policy for the U.S. getting rid of Gaddafi, just like getting rid of Lumumba and brutally plundering the country for decades. It doesn't represent failure, uh, even if Dulles would say, oops, we got it wrong. Like that's, you know, it's, that's easy enough to say once you've secured the, the plunder for decades and decades. And the the last thing that I'll, I'll say about this uh, episode is that it there's a... The picture, you know, speaks a thousand words. Maybe that's sometimes the case, maybe not. But in this case, I think it is. Uh, President Kennedy is photographed as he receives word of Lumumba's assassination. This was just a coincidence because there was a photographer that was supposed to be there capturing some moments of the Kennedy White House, which had just taken office pretty recently. And uh, Kennedy gets this call from Adlai Stevenson, who's the U.S., who's his uh, man at the U United Nations. And... Uh, Adelaide Stevenson informs him that Lumumba has been assassinated. And you can see the anguish on Kennedy's face. And uh, Alan Dulles would have been aware of this and never would have never told Kennedy, just like he didn't tell Kennedy a number of things, um, like he was plotting to kill him, presumably. Uh, and But with Kennedy, you see here, you have a, a president who is showing uh, visible despair over a policy, the successful policy of a predecessor. So Eisenhower authorizes the assassination. Lumumba gets assassinated. And this new president is saying, oh, oh, dear. He recognizes like what a disaster this is. So to me, I think this is, uh, you know, an, a, a fascinating picture. It also happens to be about where he got shot too, like on the right temple. Right. So this is like pregnant with, uh, you know, meaning and irony and so on. So thus far, We've talked about the Eisenhower administration's involvement in assassinations and coups and clandestine operations in Iran, Guatemala, Vietnam, Indonesia, uh, Egypt, Cuba, and Congo. Was there any pushback in the Eisenhower administration against the relatively new CIA and its covert operations? What, what was the feeling inside the Eisenhower administration about this growing pace of 
extreme forms of meddling around the world? Well, the Eisenhower administration and Eisenhower himself and the U.S. in general still had elements of uh, New Deal culture and democratic culture. Uh, the the kind of doctrinaire Marxist idea of the way that the, the bourgeois state operates is that, uh, you know, the, the it's an administrative entity designed to reproduce the organs of capital accumulation and so on. And that's not terribly wrong from a, you know, a, a very generic abstract, uh, you know, perspective, but it doesn't capture everything and it kind of oversimplifies certain aspects of the, the U.S. system. So people did have ideas about like fair play and the, and the rule of law and so on, even though it's hard for us to believe this looking at, at these things uh, now and, and, and what's, you know, unfolded in, the, in all these decades. But there were elements who said, like, maybe this is not really what we should be doing. This is not this is not good. And maybe it's the in, in circles of power. Sometimes the the only argument you can make to that end is like, well, this is actually undermining our interest to do this. But even at least that somebody saying, hey, can we put the brakes on this? So it, one example of the an awareness in these circles that there were problems that ought to be addressed is the Bruce Lovett report which came out in 1956. And I have a snippet here from RFK Jr., uh, an article that he wrote. And uh, he's inter it's interesting because of, as you'll see later, his father has a, uh, an interesting part in how this, this whole story came out. But I'm just gonna read this snippet from a RFK article. It has one error, he gets the year wrong. It's always listed as 1956 instead of 57, but set that aside. He wrote, thanks in large part to Alan Dulles and the CIA, whose foreign policy intrigues we're often directly at odds with the stated policies of our nation. The idealistic path outlined in the Atlantic Charter was the road not taken. In 1957, my grandfather, Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy, sat on a secret committee charged with investigating the CIA's clandestine mischief in the Mideast. The so-called Bruce Lovett Report, to which he was a signatory, described CIA coup plots in Jordan, Syria, Iran, Egypt, uh, Iraq, and, um, and Iran, right? All common knowledge on the Arab street, but virtually unknown to the American people who believed at face value their government's denials. The report blamed the CIA for the rampant anti-Americanism that was then mysteriously taking root in the many countries in the many countries in the world today. Mysteriously. Yeah, mysteriously. <laughs> the Bruce Lovett report pointed out that such interventions were antithetical to American values and it compromised America's international leadership and moral authority without the knowledge of the American people. The report also said that the CIA never considered how we would treat such interventions if some foreign government were to engineer them in our country. Well, we can guess about that one with Russiagate, except that that also seems to have been a CIA production in the first place. But we saw that the reaction was very, very harsh. And that led to, for people paying attention, uh, a, a real like a orgy of hypocrisy, basically, where they were where you had like James Clapper saying like, oh, yeah, well, we do actually meddle in other countries all the time. But, you know, it's for a good cause. So this is the, the they're, they're, he's putting it out. The, the report raises these questions. So I'm going to look at some sections here on the uh, on the actual report because it's it's not very long. And then I'll, I have some other interesting facts about the, the report and, and the history of the report itself. So the um, th this section here, this first passage is talking about how the CIA, busy, moneyed, and privileged, loves its king-making uh, responsibility. Uh, so this is this is where you the the moneyed and privileged part i mean this is an important part of understanding the cia a lot of the early people the old boys were wall street people they were they were in the social register and they were connected to the ivy leagues and uh were connected to the pinnacle of u.s capitalism so this was like a gentleman's game just sort of like the oss in the world war ii that these sort of same people get brought into intelligence so they are they all these are people who reflexively see the national interest as being synonymous with Wall Street's interests. Um, and they are not supervised in what they are doing. It says uh, long range planning and guidance for these that maybe State Department and Defense Department can do this, but it's it's lacking. And that the twin purposes of frustrating the Soviets and keeping others pro-Western is used to justify just about anything. Any sort of psychological welfare or paramilitary action uh, can be justified. So 
psychological warfare, just propaganda campaigns, manipulation of civil society and paramilitary is just, you know, terrorism, assassinations, all these other uh, activities that that intelligence agencies can carry out. So they're they're folk. They're really hitting on a lot of things that would become more and more obvious as time went on. And this report was almost like forgotten to history. So they, they go on to say um, that once the CIA plan is conceived, it's essentially uh, the, there's like a pro forma approval process from the operations coordinating board. And uh, this is a problem. They essentially are running and approving their own operations. Uh, and they argue, this the people at Bruce Lovett report, they argue that these things should be approved not just by the National Security Council, but they should also have contu continuous surveillance of these things. So they shouldn't be able to set up operations and these different enterprises and have them go for years and years with nobody in the White House even knowing what's going on. I mean, a new administration can't possibly know these things. Even a new CIA director is going to have a hard time getting a handle on this. James Schlesinger himself said that, Nixon's CIA director. He said that that it's impossible for anyone, even the director, to know everything the CIA is up to. So I can't really say that the CIA wasn't involved in like stuff like Watergate. And that was essentially what he said. Um, it, they go on to stay, say explicitly, approval of any new project would appear to compromise simply the endorsement of a director of central intelligence proposal. Okay, so the director has this kind of power. Uh, this is uh, pretty amazing. And the only uh, kind of check that the president has likely is uh, an off the record discussion with the National Security Council uh, about them. So this is very freewheeling, freewheeling ways of handling these issues. Now, they also say that these are highly graded young men. They're talking about paramilitary operations and psychological warfare, highly graded young men who must be doing something to justify their reason for being. This is another aspect of the, the CIA and the sort of deep state taking over a lot of foreign policy that they are in every part of the world. You've got these people and their whole job is to like do something, to do stuff all the time. So if they're in wherever they are, it might be some backwater. And maybe if they're in a smaller country, they're not going to have as much you know budget and leeway. But they're they're plotting. You know, what is the, what's the situation like? What's our man in Albania saying or What's our man in Belize saying and so on? This is like, what, what are they, what are we doing to make sure everything is going the way they want to? They're always, you know, scheming and conspiring. I mean, this is essentially institutionalized conspiracies. And uh, they, a lot of this report, by the way, is deleted. It would be nice to know what they actually said. It hasn't come out the whole unredacted thing. Um, but they say strange things are apt to and do develop. Well, you know, this was around the time of the Office of Policy Coordination that was involved in all these different drug intrigues, especially in the Golden Triangle uh, in the wake of World War II. You know, the aftermath of World War II, you had them set up heroin trafficking networks, and some of this money gets used to fund uh, like anti-communist league. They set up things like the East Asian People's Anti-Communist League, the World Anti-Communist League. They create things like the Korean CIA, the KCIA, right? Uh, the LDP, the Japanese ruling party is essentially a CIA project given enormous amounts of cash that, and, and who's in control of these huge slush funds? Is it the LDB, LDP? Is it the right-wing East Asian Anti-Communist League? Is it other people connected to the CIA, but in and out of the CIA? I mean, these enormous strange things that develop uh, can become, uh, a, they can manipulate events and allow for clandestine intrigue even uh, beyond what the CIA or the president ever authorized. So, and in the seventies, when the CIA is kind of hobbled, these kind of institutions come together and are able to essentially function like the CIA without the CIA. It's like the deep state has created enough of these enterprises that nobody can bring it under control. It's like, you can't even really stop it by stopping the CIA because it represents wall street power. And it doesn't matter if it, the CIA is taken out of the, the picture for a couple of years because they're under investigation. Um, and, and there's, uh, it says if exposed, a lot of these operations could not be denied. It'd be naive to think that, uh, the American hand in these operations is not known to all the local people and to communist party officials and lots of other people. Uh, so this is sullying the reputation of the United States. This is a pragmatic argument for reining them in, not exactly a moral argument. Um, 
And then they ask the question, should not someone somewhere in a position of authority be counting the immediate costs of disappointments? And they mentioned some of them that it failed, like their, some of the stuff to get Nasser failed. Uh, Syrian operations didn't go as well. Jordan, I'm not expert on what they were doing in Jordan, but I'm sure it was, you know, criminal <laughs> and so on. Um, calculating the impacts to our position of these sort of sh uh, shenanigans and keeping in mind the wisdom of activities which have entailed the virtual abandonment of the international golden rule. And this is quite an interesting passage because this kind of gets to the heart of it. It's that the U.S., and especially with the CIA, where you just do criminal things and deny it, it's so obvious that the U.S. is a, you know, is a, represents a dark imperialist force out there. And even somebody saying that it's harder to adhere to the golden rule, it's like that shouldn't be uh, something that we sort of laugh at, but it's almost funny to say that now. But And yet it, it would be reasonable to act that way in a, in a decent world. <laughs> it, it reminds me of the international rules-based order called the International <laughs> Golden Rule. Yeah, I mean, that would actually be the best thing is if Mike Pompeo came out and said, these people are trying to disrupt the international golden rule. Man. <laughs> you know, I mean, like they are golden rule disrespectors and uh, we got to deal with them. I mean, they, they could have, they could just as well say that it would be just as ludicrous. Um, so, and they ask, what are the effects on our present, present alliances? Where will we be tomorrow? Well, you know, power and money can cover up a lot of mistakes and that's kind of how they've been able to get by for so long. Now they say here, um, towards the end, that we're sure the supporters of the 1948 decision to launch this government on a positive psychological warfare and paramilitary program could not possibly have foreseen the ramifications of the operations which have resulted from it. <laughs> okay, no one uh, except for those in the CIA immediately concerned with day-to-day -day operations have any detailed knowledge of what's going on. All right, this is, they're already saying it. Nobody except for a select group of CIA people even knows what they're doing, which is amazing in 1956. It hasn't even been around for 10 years. Uh, the, with the world situation and what it is, uh, we need to re-engage and we need to uh, reappraise this and and align our systems to like somewhat match, you know, our values or whatever. This is what they're getting at at the end. Uh, and some accompanying unentanglement of our involvement and a more rational application of our activities than is now apparent. So what's interesting about this is I would disagree with these authors. I think that the people that went and pursued this course in 1948, okay, the National Security Act is, is 1947. In 1948, they embark on uh, big campaigns in uh, Italy and Italy and Greece, as I recall. And the uh, sort of it, the impetus for this was came from sort of Wall Street circles. People like James Forrestal who was one of the, the guys behind the creation of the CIA, wanted this to be handled off the books. Like they were actually looking to raise funds for some of these early operations. Uh, I believe it was the Italy operation, the Italian election stealing operation. They wanted to go around like places like the Brook Club in New York City, which is like old money, right? And raise money that way, not have it carried out by the government. But, but Alan Dulles represented forces that wanted it to be given state sanction. Okay, so Forrestal kind of suspected that this was something that would have a corrupting effect on the government and get the government involved in, you know, nefarious business that they'd rather have some degree of separation from. Dulles said, it's not that Forrestal wasn't an imperialist, he just had a different idea of how this should be handled. And Dulles wanted it to be brought into the US and given state sanction, given the sanction of the Almighty. And Dulles prevailed. And Dulles also was the guy who wrote sections of the War and Peace Studies report for the Council on Foreign Relations during World War II that are still classified on security and sovereignty. And Peter Dell Scott and others have speculated that this probably was a call for the creation of something like a central intelligence agency so that you have these sort of liberal institutions of world order that they propose like the UN and the IMF and the World Bank. But then you got to have somebody there to like act as the enforcer for, for the US and for, for US hegemony. So I think that actually some of these people did know what, what they wanted and they got what they wanted. People like Alan Dulles, people like the Wall Street Council on Foreign Relations, like this is what they wanted. They wanted the ability to have a dictatorial, dark, sovereign power to uh, make events unfold the way that they want to and be able to lie about them uh, when they are so shady that they wouldn't want to claim them openly. And that's uh, 
you know, that's a real, a real issue there. Now, the last thing I'll say about this is uh, something on the origins and how this report came out. I was trying to find out how people came to be aware of this report. Uh, it's discussed in David Talbot's book and then in uh, Tim Wiener's book later. But in 1995, well before both of those books are written, Legacy of Ashes and Devil's Chessboard, you had this um, passage from, uh, it was, uh, I believe it was maybe even the letters section, but they were describing what happened and how they were trying to get the more details on the Bruce Lovett report. So I'll just read this. We consulted the author of the Dulles biography, Peter Gross. That's the guy that uh, Alan Dulles said, that little Kennedy, he's, he thought he was a god, right? He, that's the guy that he said that to. Okay, Gross told us that he had not seen the report itself, but had used notes made from it by historian Arthur Schlesinger for Robert K., Robert F. Kennedy and his times, Schlesinger's big biography on RFK. Schlesinger informed us that he had seen the report in RFK's papers before they were deposited at the JFK Presidential Library in Boston. He had loaned Gross his notes and does not have a copy of these notes or of the report itself. This raises an interesting question. How did a report on the CIA written for President Eisenhower in 56 end up in the RFK papers? We think we have the answer. Robert Lovett was asked to testify before General Maxwell Taylor's Board of Inquiry on the 1961 Bay of Pigs operation. Robert Kennedy was on that board and may have asked Lovett for a copy of the report because they wanted some dirt on leverage over the CIA at this time because they were they felt like they'd been screwed by the CIA because they'd been screwed by the CIA. Um, okay, wanted a copy, uh, asked him for a copy of the report, but we do not have the answer to another question. Where is the Bruce Lovett report? The JFK Presidential Library has searched the RFK papers without success. Surely the report will turn up someday, even if one government agency and four separate archives so far haven't been able to find it. Well, it does end up appearing in the place that I found it was the uh, appendix of Tim Wiener's book, Legacy of Ashes, which is a uh, limited, very, it's an exhaustive, limited hangout history of the CIA. So it's basically admitting everything that can't really be denied. And so it's useful that way but he has a very uh, establishment-friendly spin on everything, uh, chalks a lot of things up to incompetence, and does not go into areas where a CIA hand is almost you know, certain to have existed, uh, like the Kennedy assassination or, or Watergate. He has very, and he doesn't get much into the drug angle either. So he's a, he, I think Tim Wieners, it's essentially having a CIA-friendly guy write a history of the CIA. It's about what you'd expect, still useful for research purposes, but that's, that's what it is. Wiener actually wrote that if the Bruce Lovett report had gone public, it could have potentially destroyed the agency. So Dulles pretty much buried it, although it does surface in redacted form many decades later. So as we wrap up on Eisenhower at, at long last, um, in his final years, we see things like the Gary Powers incident and then his farewell address. Um, he starts to kind of understand what it is that he's built or that his administration has brought about and that it's starting to take on a, a life of its own and that to some extent the legacy that he leaves behind to uh, to take him out of context, of course, is a legacy of ashes. So how did Ike confront or how did he fail to confront the deep state that metastasize under his uh under the eisenhower administration or we could say regime if you're if you're outside of the u.s <laughs> well eisenhower uh wanted you know he made speeches about how this brinksmanship and mutually assured destruction was like human humanity hanging on a cross of iron every dollar spent on you know weapons of war is a dollar that could be spent uh feeding hungry people and so on uh, he, like other presidents, had an incentive to want to be known as someone who brought peace and prosperity to uh, the people of the United States and the world. And uh, to that end, he he wanted he had inclinations to try to pursue some kind of detente with the Soviet Union. There was this peace summit going on in 1960, and uh, it gets basically derailed when. You, you, the U-2 pilot, the pilot po flying a CIA mission, Gary Powers, gets uh, either shot down or forced to land somehow. Some people say he was like sabotaged. And we should clarify maybe for people who don't know, when we say U-2 pilot, we don't mean Bono's personal pilot. We don't mean the, the awful band. We mean the spy technology 
the surveillance technology. <laughs> yeah, I if Bono got shot down flying over Russia, my if response only. would be pretty different. <laughs> but this one was pretty disastrous because it stopped the uh, peace conference. Now, Colonel Prouty, Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty, Man X in uh, Donald Sutherland, played by Donald Sutherland in JFK, right? A very uh, colorful character who worked between the CIA and the Pentagon and quit after JFK was assassinated. Um, this episode, he believes that the Gary Powers Institute or incident was a big part of why Eisenhower gave the military industrial complex speech that he was pissed off about his own elements of his own government undermining him and, uh, you know, basically damaging the cause of world peace. Whether that's true or not, his farewell address was delivered uh, at the end of his presidency. And it was only a few years after C. Wright Mills wrote about the anti-democratic essence of the United States in a book that we've discussed a lot, The Power Elite. And uh, there's a quote here from the uh, Ike's Farewell that's very famous, but I'll just go ahead and, and read it. He said, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. Okay, and one person who did not reverse that trend and actually saw it really uh, metastasize because he took over as the Korean War was winding down uh, was was Eisenhower. So he's and with the case of intelligence where he says it's a legacy of ashes, and then with the military industrial complex, you've got Ike sort of admitting that there is a, there's a problem, but it's a problem. These are problems that he did a lot to uh, create and didn't do much to stop unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, of course, those comments have become so well known, those uh, very revealing comments that he made. And Seamus, you know, you joke that you can call it the Eisenhower regime. I mean, he was a general, he was a military leader who became the civilian leader. And a lot of countries, even if they have the ostensible uh, rubber stamp of a democratic vote, they, that would be referred to as a regime, especially overseeing the terror operations and assassinations and, and all of that. But I think what's interesting is that final speech, that alone has kind of given Eisenhower, at least looking back in history, a, 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 kind, of, um, a kind of veneer of being like a, a peaceful president. Of course, everything we've talked about in these past several parts show that, that, that the, the honorable myth of Eisenhower as, a, as one of the last few, like, um, you know, apolitical presidents who was truly just interested in, in the, the best will of acting on behalf of the American people and all that stuff. Obviously, we know that that's just part of the the branding. But that last speech has really had a, a very marked impact on U.S. politics, the fact that he warned about the military industrial complex. So how do you think that the Eisenhower administration is seen today. What is the legacy of Eisenhower and does he deserve that legacy? Well, the legacy that he has as a result of the military industrial complex speech, perhaps he's seen as being prescient in some ways. And it's hard to uh, put a, to really to convey, I mean, I wasn't alive then, but the sort of vibe <laughs> for lack of a better word of the 1950s, uh, is something that that also has to be taken into account in terms of understanding the way he was perceived. So in America, you have finally the end of the Korean War and the end of World War II, and the the, the permanent war economy has uh, helped to soften the edges of the business cycle. And so American the American economy is booming for most people. Of course, you always have these groups that are left out of this prosperity in the U.S., and we know who those groups are. But uh, it was a time of a, a material boom with, uh, with some strange dark edges around it as well. But um, it, it's, you know, you had like uh, huge cars, cheap gas, Playboy magazine, uh, you know, refrigerated bacon on sale everywhere. A lot of these, this consumer paradise uh, that had not, that didn't exist before in the United States. It was, you know, the, you had the depression and then World War II rationing and so on. But finally, the U.S. is very prosperous. And so there's that that's the way the 50s are remembered for many Americans and many students of American history as this kind of golden age. But it was uh, in foreign policy that the U.S. was really very mischievous. And his idea, Eisenhower's idea of the military industrial complex was 
influenced by C. Wright Mills, and who was an, the important, you know, th towering thinker of the day. But it was a weaker critique of of Mills. So the military-industrial complex is just a more narrow version of the privately incorporated permanent war economy. Okay, so it's not just a group of people looking for weapons contracts. But what Mills was saying was this: like the privately incorporated part. Okay, the fact that it's all owned by Wall Street, you know, major corporations, and the permanent war part, meaning that it's this permanent war economy that it's like basically a perpetual government program, but just to produce weapons of war, that this was leading us to disaster. And it had created a kind of strange dictatorship of the United States. He doesn't use, say dictatorship, but he it, it's more or less a way to say there's a top-down rule in the United States of elites that's really subverted democracy. Now, Eisenhower's speech is written by uh, Malcolm Moose, who was a political scientist and he would have known all about Mills because this was all the talk in social sciences back then. Even though political science really attacked the power elite and Mills pretty ferociously, especially like Robert A. Dahl's 1957, The Concept of Power. This is a counterattack against the power elite thesis. Okay, which because C. Wright Mills' basic argument was there's really not as much power sharing in democracy in the US as political scientists claim. Okay, political scientists just love to study polls and polling data and democracy, and they describe a world in which there's democracy and the rule of law and so on. Mills was saying, this is mostly illusory or very superficial. In reality, it's a top-down system by and large. Okay, and Eisenhower was the beneficiary of some of this these corporate uh, agendas and America's massive you know, economic might at the time. NSC 68, written in 1950, called for this big rearmament. Uh, and, and massive military spending campaign. Korea led that for that to be implemented, essentially. And there was no looking back after that. Uh, military expenditures were always huge for the U.S. and the U.S. ran balance of payments deficits constantly, except for one president, John Kennedy, who tried to get them uh, back into the black and was actually successful in the period right before he died. Um, but this was this the military, the military industrial complex became the backbone of the of the US economy. It was the the prosperity was 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 a result of massive military spending to a large degree. And it could have been for other kinds of social spending. There were different ways you could get that sort of effect, but it that but not without side effects that the uh, powers that be did not want. Basically, they don't want too much material security and prosperity in the United States, especially if it's independent from profit-making entities. So uh, the George Kennan quote, we talked about it in another episode. He said, were the Soviet Union to sink into the waters of the ocean tomorrow, the American military industrial complex would have to remain substantially unchanged until some other adversary could be invented. So that became the backbone of it. Now, if I'm going to summarize Eisenhower here as I close out you know, our episodes on Eisenhower, um, which are considerably more than what was in the book. So I, I hope that this is uh, interesting for people who want to get a good summary of what he was up to. But I'm going to read my section from the book here as that I conclude Eisenhower's uh, passages in the book with. To summarize, Dwight D. Eisenhower's ascendancy to the presidency was another milestone in the rise of the American deep state. Backed by vast sums of corporate cash, especially oil money, the Eisenhower administration proceeded to devote U.S. power toward furthering the CFR loose vision of American empire and thus to extinguish any remaining chances for a century of the common man. This was most clearly epitomized by Eisenhower's appointment of the Dulles brothers to head the State Department and the CIA. The two brothers had previously been lawyers from Sullivan and Cromwell, the illustrious Wall Street law firm whose clients included the top U.S. and Western multinational corporations. Thusly did the Wall Street overworld enjoy the deepest ties to the State Department and to the CIA, collectively the pinnacle of U.S. foreign policy decision-making. When a journalist asked CIA Director Alan Dulles what the CIA was, the spymaster answered that the agency was the State Department for unfriendly countries. The unfriendly countries would include Iran, Guatemala, Egypt, Syria, and Indonesia. In these places, the CIA and its agents carried out all manner of covert operations up to and including assassinations and the overthrowing of governments. While the full history of almost all of these episodes has remained at least partly submerged, it was during the Eisenhower administration that C. Wright Mills wrote The Power Elite. Even without the bulk of the historical evidence which supported his thesis, Mills was able to make the case that democratic sovereignty had become a facade 
and that control lay in the hands of an increasingly interchangeable elite of power situated at the top of the organizations which dominated big business, the federal government, and the military. At the end of his presidency, Eisenhower delivered, in the passive voice, a warning about the military-industrial complex, an undemocratic pillar of the deep state that had, at the very least, metastasized during his administration. Eisenhower speechwriter, political science professor Malcolm Moose was surely influenced by Mills and the power elite. The term the military-industrial complex was, in essence, a repurposing of Mills' privately incorporated permanent war economy, though obviously Eisenhower, unlike Mills, did not anchor it in a deeper critique of the anti-democratic character of big business and the military. Whatever the old general may have been referring to near the end of his presidency, Eisenhower best summed up his administration when he said that to his successor, he leaves a legacy of ashes. That's a very good way to conclude. So this was a pretty lengthy section on Eisenhower, but I think this history is really important to understand the emergence of the U.S. empire and the U.S. deep state. And we will continue going forward historically. Next, you know, we're going to be talking about JFK and Johnson and so much more to go. But this is the Empire and Deep State series. And this is based on the book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State by Aaron Good, the historian and political scientist. This, this show is, is co-produced by the American Exception podcast and Multipolarista. If you want to get early access to all of the episodes just to listen to, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash American Exception. And of course, later on, all of these episodes will be available on YouTube and will be public. And if you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash multipolarista. So Aaron, I think, I think that we did a great job of covering all that history there. And I'm looking forward to, to moving forward. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to get into talking about JFK. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a while and it's uh, November coming up really soon. So it's going to be fun. Great. Well, we'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Dana Chavaria for engineering the audio and also to Seamus McGinnis for producing the episode. And as ever, thanks to Mock Orange for the music. In the next episode, we are going to get into JFK's presidency. The Kennedy presidency was a crucible in the history of the U.S. empire. When properly understood, JFK's presidency and assassination are a saga that illuminates the real history of the world order we have been living under since the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Until next time, mind the light. Mind the light.